0: I am going to read you uh, the scripture for this morning that Matt's going to preach on. It comes from the book of Luke, chapter 24, and I'm going to read to you verses 36 through 49. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The word of the Lord.
1: I made that comment about the oats, it was apparently unclear, but what the boxes of food were that were filled yesterday were boxes of oatmeal, 16,000. So I came in and Brian was cleaning, he said a lot of oatage, right, is that what you said? Not sure if that's the correct nomenclature, but, and I'm tired, in a 5K with my kid, came back here, did just a little bit of help with them, help lead the retreat, and it finally feels like a, I feel like you parents that go to soccer games all day, I think that's Similar in fatigue. What we've been doing is spending a few weeks, and by that I mean about 21, looking at the questions people ask Jesus, and then looking at the questions that he asked them in his resurrected state. And I love the way Luke tells this story. Luke's so deliberate and precise about small details here, and then he'll summarize a big, a, a whole section of Scripture, and we're like, well, you could say a little more about that, or just one verse. You know, you're the gospel writer, not me. It almost reminds me of the book of Mark, which is very fast and action-packed, because here's Luke... Um, explaining that this happened in rapid succession. You know, Peter and John went to the tomb, it wasn't there, and Mary Magdalene gets to be the first witness of the resurrection, and she's so bold in the way that she interacts with Jesus. Jesus walks with Cleopas and another person on the road to Emmaus and explained himself, by the way, Cleopas, if you look at his Wikipedia page, might have been Jesus' uncle. We do not have enough verification to say that he was, but his Wikipedia page is interesting. I commend it to you. <laughs> And the reason I like that Luke writes it this way is not only because uh, this is how the story happened, but the eyewitness accounts that he received that make up the book of Luke were full of not only details, like how was the fish cooked, but also what was it like. And so the disciples are emotionally very confused in this moment. They're reeling. Because they love Jesus and he was killed a couple of days before. And they're beginning to hear accounts of his resurrection. But resurrection, while it's a relatively normal word, at least here in this church, was not an idea that they either understood or especially understood having to do with one person bodily rising from the dead and then appearing to them. The disciples are reeling. And the description of it reminds us, and I've talked about this a lot, but I think it's important, so I'm going to say it again, but briefly, that these are eyewitness accounts. Whether you believe and trust in them is a, is a complex matter. We can talk about epistemology sometime. But they reflect the fact that Luke is an, eye, is, is a, an account of a series of eyewitness, eyewitness, eyewitnesses that he wrote down for us. Disciples are startled and frightened, and I appreciate that, too, because aren't we startled and frightened? Even if we live indoors and know where our next meal is coming from, life still throws all sorts of disorienting things at us, and we reel from them. We deal with death or sickness or expectations. Not that those are the same things, but the disciples' expectations a couple of days before Jesus died were one thing— The day that he died, another thing. When they started to hear about the resurrection, changed. And it's disorienting, and we often reel as humans, so I love knowing that the disciples did too. They're human beings. So they think that Jesus is a spirit, and in their startledness and and fright, they're beginning to be excited. That's why it says in their disbelief for joy, They're starting to become very excited about what's happening, but they're still not sure and they think Jesus might be a spirit. And and let's be honest, like if if someone that that you know passes away and you see them, it would be a little easier to take if they were a spirit and didn't have a body, right? I mean, I think for me, it would be easy. I mean, it wouldn't be easy to deal with, just easier to deal with. So their minds are uh, spinning just like ours would be. And I want to point out too that for joy in my opinion, as, as the, the disciples are dealing with this and Jesus is pursuing them in their troubles and their doubts, it shows that their faith was integrated. Their faith had to do with their mind and it had to do with their emotions and it had to do with their gut, their reaction to life. Sometimes we get the gut and the heart a little bit confused because they both have to do with emotions, but like we can feel sadness or happiness for a long time. right? But there are certain ways that we react to the world. And then there are the things that we think. And the disciples' faith and trust in Jesus, fledgling at this point, was an integrated thing. It had to do with what they believed in their mind. It also had to do with their affections and emotions. And it had to do with their instincts. And what we're longing for as well is an integrated faith, where it's not only that we believe these propositions, it's also that we have affection for Jesus. And. Our very reactions are becoming more and more like his. When we see injustice, we respond with a, as close as we can get to a righteous kind of anger. There's a lot in here about the disciples being disoriented and attempting to listen to Jesus and, and hear what he's saying as he restores them to himself. And I believe it models a faith that was integrated. It wasn't simply beliefs, it wasn't simply affection. It was their whole being. And Jesus surprises them and encourages them. And I think this is a beautiful, contrasting uh, resurrection account compared to Mary Magdalene's account. I don't know if you remember it very well. It's recorded uh, more specific. It's referenced here and recorded more specifically in John. And uh, one of the funniest parts, I think, of the whole Bible is when she mistakes Jesus for a gardener. And I think it's because she just wanted this person to go away so she could grieve. Then, when she realizes it's Jesus, when he says, Mary, what does she do? Do you remember? She grabs him. And he says, don't cling to me. And the reason is, he's beginning to show her that she's going to have a role in the kingdom. And it's good to touch him. He's a physical being and they're friends. But don't cling because he's going to need to ascend. Now, we contrast that with these disciples that are like, he's a spirit. And Jesus invites them to touch Do you see the specificness with which Jesus restores his friends and followers? Last week we looked at Thomas who had three major doubts and one big problem. Jesus comes to him, makes three offers and one encouragement. Do you remember the story of Peter's denial? It's the most famous version of this part of the scriptures. Denies Jesus three times. So what does Jesus do? Shows up and condemns him. No. Restores him. How many times? Three. With Mary, it was a much simpler matter because of her bold faith grabbing onto him once she recognized him. And here, it's with a larger group of disciples. They're confused and think he is not physically present, but present in spirit, and so he encourages them to come and touch them and say, I'm not a spirit. And then, in a move, I believe, of deliberate, gentle gravitas, eats some fish, pushing forward the fact that he was existing in uh, bodily form. What a, a spectacular way to further encourage the disciples to believe in his resurrected state. Do you broil fish? Skin side down. So we have a convection oven, so there's a fan in it. That makes me nervous about broiling fish. I can cook fish other ways. But I'm not there yet as a cook. And the reason I'm pointing that out is not because I need your advice, though I would take it. It's because Luke includes the fact that it wasn't simply a piece of fish, but it was broiled. And I love these details. Here are the disciples wondering if it's a spirit. Jesus invites them to touch him. Then he asks for a fish. It happened to be broiled fish, so that the the witnesses told Luke that. And then he eats it in front of them. And and I'm curious about how fast he chewed. Was he smiling? Because this is, his, this is one of the ways that he invites them to understand that he was there in physical form. And he asks why they're troubled. And I don't know if you grew up in a faith tradition. I don't know how familiar you are with the scriptures. There are some versions of Christianity where any time doubt or anxiety or troubles come up, they're condemned, and that's not how Jesus dealt with it, ever. We have lots of lists of ways to violate love for God and neighbor. We don't need to add to them. Your hearts are troubled about things, and Jesus' voice speaking into your troubles, I'll define troubles in just a minute, is one of love and not one of condemnation. If you want to know what he condemns, there's plenty of places to go in terms of how we can harm one another and violate love for God. This is not a text like that. This is Jesus pursuing and restoring the disciples to himself. And there's a difference between troubles and doubts. And it's not as uh, linguistically Philologically clear as, as, as I want, but contextually it is The word for troubles is very different than the word for doubt Troubles is uh, dia legitsomai I know you don't care about the Greek, but I do And I think you deserve good scholarship And that means like logos, like the word, and contrasting So contrasting ideas are going on in their head The word for doubt is the word for faith with an A in front of it As in no faith Troubles are arising in their minds, and I want to encourage you with something. There are doubts. I wonder what's true, and then there are troubles. I have some understanding of this, but it still bothers me. Many of you who have suffered, you wonder if you doubt God's goodness, and I would say no, but you're troubled by your experience of it, and there's a difference, and it's important to notice that in the disciples, who long to believe and place their faith in this, and they're troubled. Thoughts are going back and forth in their mind. Is he a spirit? Is he real? What does this mean to my faith? What does this mean to our friendship? And we are similarly troubled. We have doubts, and we have troubles. And Jesus pursues us in the midst of both, invites us to take both in front of him, in community, in prayer, and deal with them with no sense or tone of condemnation whatsoever. Jesus surprises his friends, encourages them, and reminds them. He reminds them about things that he had told them about and now telling them about about those things again in his resurrected state really pressed into the truth of them. Picking up in verse 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And the Psalms is a way of summarizing the section of the Bible not covered by the prophets and the law. So the the Jewish uh, way of reading the text is the law the prophets, and the writings. So Jesus is summarizing the writings by saying the psalm. So he's saying the whole Old Testament points to me and the need for me to die to, and rise from the dead to fulfill the law. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures in verse 45 and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to his name in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. And repentance is one of the first things Jesus taught. If you go to Mark chapter 1, he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe. Forgiveness of sins was something that he talked about and told stories about and modeled. It was so interesting the way he would model it because he would put himself in the position of God to forgive sins. And they remember these things, and now they understand them more fully because Jesus is explaining them in his resurrected state. Oh, okay. Jesus is not only a prophet, he fulfills the prophets, thereby guides me in life. See Matthew 5 through 7 about how to utilize our words and prayers and stuff for his glory and the good of neighbor. Oh, Jesus is a priest fulfilling the ceremonial and the civic parts of the Old Testament. Jesus' is king, which we'll talk about more in the next couple of weeks, the disciples were very excited for him to restore the nation of Israel, and they get a very challenging answer for the, uh, from Jesus about that. Jesus is helping them understand in an integrated way the whole counsel of God, which is, are the scriptures. And he does so in a kind and pursuing way. First, Eating fish first, inviting them to touch him, reminding them that he is their friend, and then teaching them about the scriptures. You about the difference between troubles and doubts. I love that he references the Psalms. I think the Psalms might be the book for the troubled. A way of saying, in so many ways, I believe help my unbelief. I understand this is all for your glory. And I'm real frustrated. Which is a, a, a theme of many, many psalms. But Jesus is reminding them that their role as individuals is to learn lives in keeping with repentance. That is what we do as followers of Jesus. Very uncool word in 2019. And yet that's what we do. Because we continue to be men and women who do not know how to love well not regularly, not consistently, not in ways that every neighbor we come across can receive. And so what we do is we learn to live lives in keeping with repentance, which means saying sorry and asking for forgiveness and then being willing to listen to our neighbors who ask for us to change, which is a very challenging way to do life. And yet, what's the alternative? Because we're going to have neighbors we don't know how to love them as well as we would like on our good days. What's the alternative to a life of repentance? I think it's to be more and more and more closed off and more and more and more careful. That's not a good alternative. Jesus reminds them about learning to live lives of repentance and of their calling to be witnesses of his good news. And oftentimes Christians get the order of this mixed up. They think they're supposed to be witnesses first and then perhaps learn to live lives of repentance along the way. And that is when we often do something very ugly, which is proclaim the grace and the truth and the mercy of Jesus without knowing it ourselves without knowing lifestyles of repentance. Sometimes we make the opposite mistake and think we're not supposed to t- tell anyone about Jesus until we've kind of arrived in our belief. Well, that's not going to happen. So we can make a mistake on the other side, one in terms of hypocrisy, one in terms of overly quiet. Once I preached on this a couple of months ago talking about witnessing, and someone after the church said, so you're the reason I wear noise-canceling headphones on the plane. And I said, well, not as much anymore. But... And my point is, oftentimes, I don't know if this is true for you, but it was definitely true for me. I was so eager to witness because I believed so passionately. I I went too fast and too arrogantly. Not that I shouldn't have witnessed, but I should have been honest about how I was awaiting the Holy Spirit to integrate the good news in my life, even though I believed in it and trusted in it. And yes, I'm probably part of the reason that some of you bring noise-canceling headphones on airplanes. I think I'm getting a little better at that. The point is to notice here in, in Jesus pursuing his disciples after his resurrection, he reminds them that a life of life that he purchased for them, that they're just beginning to learn about, begins with knowing how to repent to God and to neighbor and then witnessing about that. And you're already witnessing. By being a human being in the world, you're witnessing in the way that you talk, in the way that you deal with your stuff, in the way that you treat people. And Jesus is reminding them that. Is he reminding them? I don't want to say this. I know you're all waiting, I know you have brunch plans. So, I want to say it the right way. Jesus is helping them understand that the most profound witness is when it is an integrated faith that begins with living a life in keeping with repentance and then moves into witnessing for that. Anyone without the other is not full faith, but it begins with learning these things for ourselves. You are a witness, and I hope that that witness is of Jesus' grace and mercy, rescuing you from a life where you think you can save yourself into a life where you know Him as Savior and called into a lifestyle of repentance. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we believe. Help our unbelief. We long for our mind and our heart and our gut to be aligned for you and your purposes. We long to enjoy the freedom and life you purchased to be how we experience every moment with the work you've given us to do, with the neighbors you've put into our lives. Holy Spirit, open our minds and our hearts. To the whole counsel of your word. Holy Spirit, grow us up as lovers of you and neighbor. Holy Spirit, let us never lose the joy of the fact that you loved us so much that you sent your son Jesus, rescuing us, teaching us to rest from trying to save ourselves and restoring us to you. Teach us to live lives in keeping with repentance for your glory the good of our neighbor, and our own good. Amen.